Welcome to Lost in the Movies. The Sight and Sound miniseries continues covering films that are from the 2022 Sight and Sound Greatest Films of All Time list, uh, but specifically the ones that I hadn't covered before in a review or a podcast, uh, you know, written piece, anything, a video essay, uh, really any capacity on my site. So these are the top five films between the critics and directors list that fit that category. This is also a film that has had a presence in or around uh, the sight and sound list for a long time. Obviously, some of those other films I'm covering were more recent, so they didn't have the chance to be on early lists. Uh, there aren't that many records of like the 1952 votes, like which films got votes beyond just what's in the top 10. There is one list somewhere that shows everything that got over five votes and Sunrise isn't on there. So if it did get votes, it was fewer than five. But 1962, it got nine votes from the critics. So it placed at number 17. In 1972, it was in a 16-way tie for number 18, because it got seven votes. So actually dropped a little bit in that interim. And then in 1982, uh, there were a couple sites I looked at that had contradictory info. One said it was in a tie for uh, number 19. Another was said it was in a four-way tie for number 17. So that's on whether it got seven or eight votes. But as you can see here, there weren't that many critics voting at the time. So, you know, it really was only getting a handful there, seven or eight votes, nine votes in 60s. Uh, in 1992, it made its way up to 10 votes, which put it in a four-way tie for number 11 on the critics list. That's how few people they had voting in these polls, that something that got only 10 votes could be just outside the top 10. And uh, I'm not sure if it was on the director, if any directors voted for it, because the list I saw only showed films that got five votes or more. In 2002, it finally made it onto the top 10 list. It was in a tie for number seven among the critics and a 16-way tie among the directors for number 46. There were 19 critics voting for it and five directors voting for it. In 2012, it was in a four-way tie for number 22 on the directors, but it was now up all the way to number five on the critics. It got 93 votes from critics and uh, 17 votes from directors. And then in 2022, when they massively expanded the voter pool, it didn't actually get many more votes in either among either among critics or directors, and it actually fell out of the top 10. So it was number 11 on the critics list and number 33 in a, in a tie uh, with other, some other films on the director's list. So that's its fluctuations over the years. It's kind of held steady there as a film held in high regard, but not necessarily right at the top of the list. Um, 2012 being its highest poll position, number five, interestingly enough. So that's the history of it on the, on the uh, sight and sound list. Uh, before we get into my discussion of the film, I just want to uh, mention my recent work. Uh, really, only thing I've put up in the past week has been reviews of The Curious Case of Benjamin Button and Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. These are part of my Unseen series, where, a little bit similarly to the concept of this podcast, I look at films from a given year that were like the most popular on Letterboxd that I hadn't seen before. So in that case, not only not covered, but never seen. And I hadn't seen these films from 2008 and 2009. Uh, right now, that's right on uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash lost the movies. But I will say it's going to be released publicly pretty soon, possibly even later today. You, you might, by the time you're done listening to this, it might already be up on the site, but I'm kind of deciding. So whether or not it's up on the site, it is on my Patreon at the moment. And I have a bunch of stuff planned for the coming 
week and a half. It should be a really busy time because I have a lot of stuff I really want to get up by the end of October, and this is my last chance to do so. So stay tuned for all of that. I also plan on putting up on this feed uh, previews of all the podcasts I have on Patreon that I haven't released publicly because those are going to stay on Patreon. I, I don't plan to continue this public feed. But uh, stay tuned for those as well before next week's episode, which we'll preview at the end of this. But first, let's get into Sunrise. For me personally, Sunrise stands out from the previous films I've discussed as part of the Sight and Sound miniseries for a few reasons. Uh, one is that those other films, uh, they take you know they were made over a broad span of time, about twenty five years from nineteen seventy five to two thousand, but all in the later part of the twentieth century. There's something still sort of fresh about them. Even Jean Dielman, the oldest of those, is kind of coming into its own in terms of its broader rep uh, well i mean it was always highly praised but in terms of its reputation as you know possibly the greatest film of all time that's a pretty new development uh, sunrise on the other hand has been revered for a long long time uh, i mean almost 100 years at this point and uh, you know that leads into the fact that it's a much older film than these other ones and it's one that has been on the sight and sound list for a while, as I've already discussed in my intro. For me personally, though, the difference, the big difference is I've seen this film before. Uh, the other three films I was watching for the first time before recording my thoughts on them. Uh, in this, it's a film I'm very familiar with. I first watched it at least 20 years ago. And it's come up tangentially on my site here and there. There was a screenshot featured in uh, when I was doing my watch list screen caps exercise 10 years ago. Uh, it was, I think, the film, th there was like one um, week or so where I watched favorite a favorite film from each decade, and this was the one I chose for the 20s. Not that it was necessarily my favorite film of the 20s, although it's up there, but uh, it was, you know, the one that I happened to watch from that decade. So... It's interesting that I never actually wrote a review of it or had like a video essay or had a podcast on it or anything like that. Uh, silent films have been kind of absent from my podcasting for the most part. I started podcasting in 2018 for patrons and opened some of that up to the public, but I never really covered silent films much, if at all. In fact, I think this might be the first podcast episode on a silent film, but I've written a lot about silent films. In fact, in the early days of my site, there was a lot of posts on silent films in 2008 and 2009 and so forth. Uh, that was like a era that I covered quite a bit. So it's interesting that somehow Sunrise never came up, but other F.W. Murnau films uh, did, or at least one did, uh, Faust, which is probably my favorite of his, although, again, this is up there. And I think those two films have something in common, which is 
this sort of strange three-act structure where the first act is very gloomy and dark and kind of purposefully slow and lumbering. And then the second act is very spry and light and actually, um, I was going to say almost comical, but very much comical. And then the third act gets kind of serious and dark again as uh, the, you know, the, the threat to the main character looms. And it's interesting that I've seen Sunrise described as sort of unexpectedly comedic for Murnau. I mean, I also think there's a fair amount of comedy in The Last Laugh, uh, or at least humorous moments, and certainly the ending that he tacks onto that film leans into that aspect of it. So he always kind of had a a funny bone. And uh, it's odd that, uh, you know, I I read that uh, apparently there were questions of whether did, you know, the fact that he made a deal with an American studio for this film after making his films in Germany throughout the twenties, was this something imposed on him by the studio that there'd be more comedy in it? And, you know, that was disproved, but I'm surprised people would even suspect that. Cause again, I feel like there is a streak of humor in his works kind of enclosed within the more brooding expressionistic elements. And, I love that element of Murnau. I've talked about that in regard to Faust, the fact that you go into a movie, you get immersed in this kind of dream world, and then it shifts into something totally different. And I love that unexpected quality to it. I mean, even now, of course, I've seen it several times. I know what's coming, but there's still a sense of uh, joyful surprise when it gets to the point where they're taking like um, stress toy, you know, child stress toys and sticking them on the heads of, Uh, headless statues and a drunken pig is running around a nightclub and just all of this goofy stuff you would never think is going to happen when this movie starts out. So, you know, as far as the story goes, it begins uh, in high melodramatic form. Although actually I should say, even before it gets to that point, it has this weird sort of travelogue quality to it where we are following these tourists from the city to the country. It's really almost more of a documentary feel in that moment. So already, I mean, this is something I'd kind of forgotten about the film. Like we start with this character who we'll soon find out is one of the main characters, mistress. So she's like a city flapper, you know, this is 1927. So full on roaring twenties mode. She's smoking. She got the short hair. She has this, slinky black dress and she uh is has seduced this local farmer and uh takes him out to the uh, kind of the the marshes and they make out and she tells him she wants him to come to the city and to kill his wife and so he's horrified by this suggestion but doesn't really refuse it and is thinking about it throughout the night and meanwhile we see that the wife knows that uh i don't she doesn't know this is coming at least not at first but she knows that he's seeing someone else that their marriage is suffering and she cries there's a sort of touching sequence where she runs to the bed where their baby is and i completely forgot they had a kid in this movie but she is uh, running to the bedroom and falls onto the bed and is sobbing into the pillow after her husband has left the dinner on the table and just basically you know ghosted her and uh, walked off to find this other woman. And uh, she's just weeping on the bed, and the child is crying at first and kind of starts when she falls down onto the bed and then starts, kind of raises the hand and is almost caressing her to comfort her, the child comforting the mother. So 
you know, there there's little surprises, little sort of idiosyncrasies throughout that that have dramatic resonance moments that Murnau finds to express the the larger ideas in the film. Um, but the the broad strokes of it are that uh, the man does take his wife on a boat excursion in the morning. He and his mistress have talked about drowning the wife. He stands up menacingly in the boat. She realizes what's going to happen. This is after a dog, again, talking about these gestures that the director finds to heighten the moment. This dog, uh, their, their pet dog, breaks free of his chain, leaps into the water, and swims toward the boat in this incredible single shot that uh, Murnau captures this where the dog is somehow senses something wrong and goes to comfort the wife and the husband glumly rows back to shore, takes the dog back up, comes back and they're out in the middle of this river or this sea uh, and or this lake or whatever, this, this uh, body of water that doesn't seem to take too long to cross because they, they're doing it in a rowboat, but you know, it is uh, it's, it's, that they're alone, they're in the middle of this body, and he stands up, and that's she's like cowering, and then pleads with him, no, no, and he falls back in his place, head in his hands, rows her to the shore. She runs away, understandably. He chases her onto a, a kind of a trolley car in the middle of the woods, and they ride off. And there's this wonderful sequence where you see out the window the landscape start to change quite quickly. There's factories, a dirt path, and then they go under this sort of bridge, and they're in the city. And I'm somebody who's always loved the contrast between city and country. I've written about this. I'll, I'll link the essay in the show notes um, in relation to Michel Gondry's music videos and the films of Zhe where you're getting this real sense of a uh, contrast, but sort of a complementary one, and the weird fluidity between these two sharply juxtaposed archetypes and the fact that there are these two very distinct locations, I think ties into the film. Uh, it's, it's more central subject, which is this marriage between these two, this man and this woman, it's called a song of two humans. That's the subtitle for the film. And so th there's a sense in which, you know, there isn't like an easy correspondence between city and country and man and woman, or for that matter, for like good and evil. The city is initially set up, and this is something a lot of commentators have noticed with the film and appreciated, I would say. I, I listened to a couple podcasts before I rewatched this, and they both mentioned this quality, that you think the city is going to be this evil den of sin that is corrupting the innocent country. And in fact, they're kind of miserable on their farm when they go to the city. They're actually... Uh, that that's where they rediscover their love. So really, it's not about where you are, but, um, you know, uh, how you are, I guess you could say, in the moment. Uh, there's, it, it takes, you know, I guess not as long as it could take, considering he was seriously considering uh, killing her. You kind of have to roll with this aspect of the movie to uh, get into the spirit of it. But, you know, there, through several minutes, she is very withdrawn and hesitant, just brokenhearted. And I love the way that uh, they play the moments of tenderness as the hardest moments of all, worse in a way than the moment where he's actually menacing her and standing tall over her. It's the moments where he's kind of asking for forgiveness or trying to make a, uh, a loving gesture 
that are the most painful for her because it's not so simple as that he's just this monster looming over her. Um, there's this complexity to it. And of course, you know, again, you have to kind of roll with it in this movie because if you if you dig into it a little too deeply, there's certainly a psychology of, you know, abuse and returning to the abuser at play, uh, sort of like a Beauty and the Beast type thing that, uh, you know, it, it, the, the film kind of works more powerfully as almost an allegory of uh, making mistakes and asking for forgiveness. And, and, you know, the murder aspect is like a heightened melodramatic portrayal that I think sometimes can be kind of jarring to viewers. But as the film goes along, they, they see a young couple getting married. It's kind of a rebirth for them. And then there's this fantastic moment where they come out of the church, they're crossing the street, there's cars whizzing every which way, but they're completely lost in their, their bliss. They're embracing and kissing one another, not looking where they're walking. And the whole background dissolves into this pastoral landscape. And then something interesting happens. This is where the comedy of the movie begins, I think, because it cuts back or it dissolves back to the city street and all these cars coming to a halt, people falling over and yelling at them. And from this point on, uh, they're romance is set against a very joyous, lighthearted, comedic backdrop. I think for Murnau, um, happiness is expressed through comedy generally in his films. I think there's a lot of drama and darkness and sadness. Um, but when it's, when the mode switches to, to joy, it's generally expressed through, sometimes very broad comedy. So I love, you know, how from this moment on, all these background characters get their like featured little snippets, like the barber kind of flittering his eyelashes at the, the manicurist and the, uh, the, the people in the dance hall, the guy pulling the woman's dress, the sleeves of her dress up and eventually just getting frustrated and pulling them down this like almost Chaplin-esque moment. Well, maybe even Keaton-esque actually, I guess the kind of, gestures the repeated gestures you know it's it's a very this is a film that dips into the whole kind of silent comedy form of uh you know i guess it's like almost its own genre in a way where distinct from verbal comedies in the years to come or even the slapstick that i feel like encompasses sound just this sort of the comedy of the gesture that that you know was so prevalent at this time and even features into here bracketed between the more heightened moments. So at the end of the film, they go back to their farm and they, their drama is settled between them. But now something, you know, another plot element intervenes where there's a big storm. She does almost drown. They get separated. He thinks she's dead. He's going after the mistress. And then lo and behold, she's found. They embrace and we get our happy ending. Uh, although we do get one of the last shots, the mistress going back to the city, kind of reminding us that actually we began with her not with these with this couple but we do end with them in the end this is an extraordinary looking film this vivid uh cinematography there's shots throughout too where there's a moving camera that's not just kind of simply dolling back and forth but using different elements in the foreground and background and weaving around like the, there's one particular shot that's famous where he's walking through the the woods to get to the mistress 
and the camera is just sort of like weaving through there, almost like it's a maze, this extraordinarily choreographed journey to get to the uh, the, the mistress that's tempting him. And uh, the, the film, it does embrace sort of different styles at times, like the fact that, you know, it's dipping into comedy and drama and and all of this. It, it, it uses a bit more of like a montage style, I think, in the city than it does in the country, where it's a little more methodical, almost like plotting in a purposeful way, like the more stereotypical idea of what a German expressionist film would be. I've always liked that Murnau kind of... He he seems more than other expressionist directors to incorporate a kind of uh, flavor of like the Soviet montage school or, you know, again, as I already mentioned, silent comedy. Like it, he's a little more eclectic, I think, in some ways than like a Lang or a Pabst, um, as great as those directors are as well. Just sort of a different thing going on there. As extraordinary as the look and the technique of the film is, the real linchpin that holds it together, of course is these characters and the performances of them. Uh, Margaret Livingston is the uh, mistress, uh, George O'Brien is the husband, and Janet Gaynor is the wife. She won Best Actress at the first ever Academy Awards. And uh, the film, by the way, won, uh, you know, this is a well-known fact, so I'm not uh, really breaking any news here, but it was in some ways the first Best Picture winner, but it was complicated because Wings was... Uh, declared the most outstanding picture of the year, and this was uh, declared, I think, the highest artistic achievement. And then we, that they sort of retconned the other picture, which was sort of a tip of the hat to the big blockbuster, as being uh, the best picture predecessor. But I think the voters had more this in mind. But at any rate, uh, Janet Gaynor, as I said, won Best Actress for this and her body of work that year, including Seventh Heaven and I um, can't remember what the other film was. As far as the kind of challenge of the roles go, it's it's interesting. I was going to start off by saying, well, George O'Brien in some ways has the more difficult role, um, which I think may be true because he has to create this kind of haunted brooding brute and then turn him into a cheerful simple almost like childlike a person who can uh redeem himself in not just his wife's eyes but the audience's eyes it, you know this is and it's this is sort of related to the film switching its storytelling method because we're starting as if we're in some sort of you know, study of a psychologically tormented person, which is like a certain type of film where we know we're watching the protagonist. They're almost like, you know, an anti-hero before that term was really in vogue. Um, but but watching this character who's sort of haunted and tormented, which a lot of silent films kind of played with that uh, type of character as like our main character in a way that I feel like at least for a while, sound films didn't quite as much. There was just a sense, I think something about... The, the brooding nature of a silent film, the way it could allow us to linger on an expression and kind of focus on the physical gestures as expressing some kind of inner torment in a way that, you know, sound films didn't automatically lend themselves to as well. Uh, f maybe for that reason, this, this was like a more common kind of uh, storytelling device, I feel like, in silent films. So the film starts in that mode, but then it has to switch it to us accepting him as like a more straightforward virtuous hero. So there is certainly difficulty in that. That said, um, 
Gaynor, in some ways, has the more challenging part in that the wife could easily be seen as secondary throughout. This could totally be the story of the man and his redemption, and she's just kind of a side piece to that. But throughout, we're given a sense of her subjectivity, the fact that we keep returning to her when she he's out with the mistress, that she's crying, that she knows something's going on. Um, the scene on the on the boat is really more from her point of view, I would say. It's, I would say, I mean, I don't want to oversimplify. It is from both. This is a film that really is able to maintain two perspectives, uh, two perspectives that at times are at odds quite well um, in a really a, a rare sense. Now that I think about it, it's one of the great films about a couple in which we can really get a sense of both of their point of views when they're in sync and when they're not. Um, and then I think in the end it slips a little because she becomes kind of the, she, you know, she's knocked unconscious. She's just floating to shore and it's more about his drama and, and she's pulled out of it. But I think for most of the film, we're really getting to see it through both of their eyes. And Janet Gaynor takes something that could be that thankless part and imbues it with such life. And I mean, she just has an extraordinarily expressive face and particularly her eyes so that uh, I think she, you know, she's like the luminous heart of the film, really. There are so many traps that this character could fall into. She could seem uh, too prudish and dowdy, where, you know, film often sort of romanticizes the charismatically, uh, you know, badass type of character. So like Margaret Livingston is able to kind of <laughs> vamp it up as this femme fatale figure and uh, have some fun with that role in a way that, you know, we could, against our better judgment, kind of go along with her flow more than the farmer's wife. But uh, Gaynor, she never she never comes off that way. She's just got like a fresh kind of wholesomeness about her and uh, a sense of humor and a sense of, um, you know, having a little bit uh, often. I mean, I think throughout she is really the anchor, both when the husband is in his darkest phase she's kind of the light there the 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 moral presence and the 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 one who really stops him from from killing her i mean she is actually active in that in that sequence where she is speaking to him and and talking him down and then fleeing and and you know she is the active presence in in that part of it and then later on when they're more in sync and harmony she seems, uh, you know, he he's almost childlike at that point, and she's kind of more, a little more on top of things. Like there's a sequence where they're just drank the expensive wine or champagne, and he's kind of hunting around for money, and she kind of smiles a little and pulls out her purse and has the money right there. So there's just this wonderful balance maintained throughout with this character. Um, I think more so with them with the character than specifically with the performance. Uh, it's it's just a great piece of acting and and uh, a great example of screen presence and I was struck looking into this film the other thing I discovered was that all three of the main actors uh, died within a year of one another uh, 1980 September I think 14th 1984 to September 4th 1985 uh, Margaret Livingston died in the middle in like December of 84 so literally almost exactly within a year of each other uh, which I, I thought was uh, quite striking, you know, all of them going out at that same time. And also, of course, you know, you see this film, it 
uh, parts of it are very modern for the time with a kind of, you know, a little bit of a jazz stylings, the flapper, but a lot of it calls back to the 19th century as well. And uh, seeing that and seeing, you know, this, this last kind of uh, example, one of the last example, one of the last major examples, obviously there were still a couple years left of silent films, but of like the pre-sound cinema uh, in its full flowering. Um, although this did have a synchronized soundtrack where the music and a few sound effects were like pre-recorded attached to the film strip itself and projected with like, you know, there wasn't like an orchestra playing along with it. It, it had a soundtrack it was supposed to have. Uh, so at any rate, you know, it's an example of this kind of much older form, but yet all of these people were still alive when I was born, died within a, a couple years of, of my own birth and in the 80s, you know, with Madonna and MTV and all this on TV at the time, so uh, or in the culture at the time. So uh, I, I just find that, you know, always fascinating how different generations and eras bleed into others far distant from their own. And that's it for my discussion of Sunrise. Next week will be the last episode of the Sight and Sound miniseries and, as planned, uh, the last episode of the Lost in the Movies public podcast. As mentioned, there have been a lot of patron reviews over the past five years that I uh, haven't released on the public feed. I'm going to put up clips of those in the coming week. But after that, I want the top, you know, most recent thing on the feed when I conclude this to be the final episode of the Sight and Sound miniseries. So whatever I put out in the interim in the next week, look for uh, the film that uh, I'm surprised I'd never covered before because this is one of my favorites. But um, for whatever reason, it didn't make my favorite films list at the time when I made it in 2011, even though I'd seen this movie and really liked it. And um, there was another film from the same year that was on that list, but then somehow this wasn't. But uh, that's a good thing in a way, because now it gives me the opportunity to wrap up a big part of my public work and these podcasts with that film. And that film is Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker from 1979. So here is a little audio sample of that to take us out for this week and lead us toward that finale. Зона это очень сложная система ловушек, что ли. Но стоит тут появиться людям, как всё здесь приходит в движение. 